first session, he sees the liturgy as the absolute key to a restoration of Christianity. And in order to restore the liturgy, he must restore our understanding of what we're all about. Okay? The love of God and the hope of a fulfillment. And if those two things are not there, then the liturgy is lost. And he doesn't he can care less whether it's the Noah's Sword, the Trinitine, the, the Melkite liturgy, whatever it is, it doesn't matter to him. The point is that the, that the orientation, the heart must be in place, and then everything else will flow, you know, flow naturally. Okay? Um, and so it's only in the second part, it's only later on in the book he's going to get to practicals. Right? And once he gets to those practicals, which we're not going to really cover except for one of them, which is, which is the heart of it, um, the most important practical aspect, um, he said, they'll just flow and they make sense. Right? And, um, but those foundations have to be in place. Okay? So let's go to. Do you guys have any questions about that? No? Am I just filibustering here? <laughs> Yes. When he says the new temple, what is he really saying? What do you think he's saying? Well, I would have thought it was Christ, you know, mm -hmm. sacrifice Christ, but then it doesn't, the rest of the sentence seems. Is that in, in point number four there? Yeah. yeah, the new temple, not made with human hands, does not, it does, it does exist. exist. But it is still under construction, which is the hope aspect, right? So it exists how? Where? In who? Yeah, Christ is that temple. Right. He is the one that is offering the perfect offering of giving to God the very life he received from God. Remember I said last time that, that the problem with man after the fall is he, is he does not have the life of God in the soul. And therefore, the very gift God gave him, he threw away and now he doesn't have to give back. And he's stuck. He can't get back to God on his own. And he needs that gift of grace that he might give his life back to him in all its fullness. Um, and so the new temple in Christ is there, and yet, what is it lacking? Carrie, what's the, what is the new temple offered to God lacking? Jesus isn't perfect, and the sacrifice isn't perfect? See, that's what I'm talking about. But we as the body of Christ are not, are not yet perfect. Okay, we as the body of Christ. And so and that becomes for him the, the game. Because look, Jesus did not become man for the fun of it. How many times have I said that? Right? He didn't die on the cross for the fun of it. It is no great wonder that God walked out of the tomb. Right? The mystery is that you and I are taken out of the tomb in Christ. That humanity is brought forth from the tomb. There is the mystery of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so all of the things which our Lord has accomplished for us are accomplished, yes, once for all, as he's going to point out in this next chapter. And yet, there's something lacking and something awaiting. And that is for all of mankind and all of creation to be taken into that offering of Jesus Christ to the Father. And the game now, the whole game will be about getting into Christ. How do we unite ourselves to him? So that as he offers himself to the Father, we ourselves are offered in union with him. And that's what the liturgy is all about. Okay? And that's why he sees, and he opens his book, he says that this tragedy, he says, look, we had this beautiful thing in the liturgy, pre-Vatican II, but it was a fresco covered up to the faithful because they're, in the pew they didn't understand what's going on. And what, the whole point of the liturgy is to get us in you got to get in. And yes, those are valuable devotions. And in as much as they help us, they're good. But is there something further that we got to get to? Okay? All right. Chapter 1, page 53. I always hate to see chapter 1 when I'm in the middle of the book. <laughs> All right, Mark, you want to read us page 53, the first, um, well, 53 and a little bit of 54. Can there really be special holy places and holy times in the world of Christian faith? Christian worship is surely a cosmic liturgy, which embraces both heaven and earth. The epistle to the Hebrews stresses that Christ suffered outside the gate and adds this exhortation. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing abuse for him. Is the whole world not now his sanctuary? Is sanctity not to be practiced by living one's daily life in the right way? Is our divine worship not a matter of being loving people in our daily life? Okay, so what, what error is he going against right at the beginning? 
He's been talking about that the whole time about, and we didn't get into it too much, but about law and the moral life and how they have to be in right order. But what's, what, era, what modern era is he going after? Yeah, yes. Modern era? Well, the, what's Seneca? Okay, how about the, the heresy of niceness? Yeah. Uh, right? The, the worship of God just consists in being nice to everyone. Right? Which he clearly doesn't. He says, look, that's meant to be part of it, but it's not the whole game. Okay, keep going for it. Is that not how we become like God and so draw near to the true sacrifice? Can the sacrifice be anything other than imitating Christ in the simple uh, patience of daily life? Can there be any other holy time other than the time for practicing love of neighbor whenever and wherever the circumstances of our life demand it? Whoever asks questions like these touches on a, on a crucial dimension of the Christian understanding of worship, but overlooks something essential about the permanent limits of human, human existence in this world, overlooks the not yet that is part of Christian existence, and talks as if the new heaven and new earth had already come. Okay, which is what uh, liberation theology, right? That's their goal. Okay. And the not yet is, is hope. Okay, and the hope for something more. Okay, keep going. The Christ event in the growth of the church out of all the nations, the transition from temple sacrifice to universal worship in spirit and truth is the first important step across the frontier, a step toward the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. But it is obvious that hope has not yet fully attained its goal. The New Jerusalem needs no temple because Almighty God and the Lamb are themselves its temple. In this city, instead of sun and moon, it is the glory of God and its Lamb, the Lamb that shed their brilliance. Okay, this, this gets to the heart. Go ahead. But this city is not yet here. That is why the Church Fathers described the various stages of fulfillment, not just as a contrast between Old and New Testaments, but as the three steps of shadow, image, and reality. Okay, so what's the shadow? What's the shadow? Yeah? Okay. We can say the Old Testament, or we can say the sacrifice of the bull on the altar, right? Okay. And the image is? Yeah? How about Christ in the church? Okay. It says, but, well, I, I mean, I, I don't want to put our Lord in there right there at that stage, but we'll say the, the age of the church, okay? The Old Testament, the age of the church. But reality is what? Is what? Christ. Yeah, Christ, and we could, say, we could put Christ in there, or we could say, uh, I'll put heaven, I guess. Even, I, I don't like that so much because we're talking about the new heavens and earth, the restoration of all things at the end of time. Okay? When all of this order is brought into union with eternity. Okay? He's saying, look, there's still something more awaiting us. We are not made to receive the life of God under the veil of bread and wine. One day that veil will be lifted and we will sit at the banquet table of our God and we will commune with Him directly. What looks like bread will suddenly be transfigured and we will behold the Lamb of God Himself. <clears throat> okay. In fact, John the Evangelist in the book of Revelation sees something of that, right? In the midst of his worship, the veil is lifted, he's taken into heaven and he sees the liturgy taking place. He sees the Lamb of God upon the altar. He hears the angels singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Okay, all those things are transfigured. He says, look, there's something more that we're looking for. Okay, we're not finished yet. In a sense, we've we got a foot in both camps. Okay, and we're experiencing the, the reality. But we're experiencing that reality in a way that still has some fulfillment to come. Okay? And then at the bottom of that page, Mark, if you want to read us just the first few sentences. Or first paragraph, just go. The idea? Yep. The idea of the New Testament as the between time, as image between shadow and reality, gives liturgical theology its specific form. It becomes even clearer when we bear in mind the three levels on which Christian worship operates. The three levels that make it what it is. Okay, now he talks about three levels, okay, of, um, of the liturgical action, okay, uh, or of Christian worship, okay? And what are those three levels? Do you guys know? Who's read this whole thing? Mark, you read it. Do you remember? 
He says, first of all, there's the level of the liturgical of the yeah, which is right there, right? which unfortunately is actually the middle level. So the way he's writing is, is difficult. The liturgical level, and the liturgical level recalls for us certain historical realities. Okay, it recalls for us the let me say the historical level when the thing actually took place. So in the liturgy, the priest says, "This is my body." The very words which took place on the lips of Christ 2,000 years ago at the Last Supper, at the very historical time and places. It says, these things actually took place. Okay? On page 55, in the middle, in the middle, he says, he had in fact given it. He had in fact shed it, meaning his body. So when we're in the liturgy and we're, and we're going through these actions, we are, in a sense, recalling for ourselves a particular historical event. Okay? And we're making it present in that way. Okay? He says, but there's a further, there is a further uh, level. And which level is that? So there's the liturgical, which recalls a past event, but what? Says there's one more level, and that level is the eternal level. Says there's in the liturgy there's an eternal level because in the liturgy we are recalling the actions of the God Man. We are recalling the actions of God Himself, who has inserted Himself into history, and in so doing that He has taken history into the life of God Himself. He has entered what he did 2,000 years ago into the life of God, and now it is made present to God forever. Okay? And that is the key to the liturgical. He says that in the liturgical action, we are not simply recalling or repeating an empty historical event. Rather, we are recalling an event which very much is present and alive today. And in that action, we are inserted into that historical event, but not 2,000 years ago. We're, that historical event, in a sense, is made present to us today, 2,000 years later. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, look on page 55. Listen, by the end of the last chapter, he's saying we're... We're not even maybe halfway there. Who knows? Maybe we're halfway there. Maybe we're 10% there. Right. But this is a, you know, we're like Paul. On the road. to go out. We're supposed to, I mean, the world will not end until all is in all. Right, right, right. So look on about, about uh, 10 lines down. He says, the Lord could say that his body was given. You see that? Only because he had given it. That's the italics. You can find it there. If you were to find the word had. Because he had, in fact, given it. He could present his blood in the new chalice as shed for many only because he really had shed it. This body is not the ever-dead corpse of a dead man. So you see what he's saying? He's able to, to say before the historical event takes place, right? Because when the historical event takes place, it inserts history into the life of God. And then that life of God can be touched in other points of history, if you will such that Abel participates in the sacrifice of Christ. Melchizedek participates in the sacrifice of Christ. Right? This body is not the everyday corpse of a dead man, nor is the blood the life element rendered lifeless. No sacrifice has become gift, for the body given in love and the blood given in love have entered through the resurrection into the eternal, into the eternity of love, which is stronger than death. Turn your page. The, the first full center. But if they were no more than facts in the past, like all the dates we learn in history books, then there could be nothing contemporary about them. In the end, they would remain beyond our reach. However, the exterior act, and this is just absolutely beautiful, and it's essential for understanding his, his concept of sacrifice. This gets carried to something we had talked about. Okay, it brings, maybe I should talk to you about this before. However, the exterior act of being crucified is accompanied by an interior act of self-giving. The body is given for you. 
No one takes my life from me, says the Lord in St. John's Gospel, but I lay it down of my own accord. This act of giving is in no way just a spiritual occurrence. It is a spiritual act that takes up the bodily into itself, the embrace of the whole man. Indeed, it is at the same time an act of the Son. In other words, an act within the Trinity. As St. Maximus the Professor showed so splendidly, the obedience of Jesus' human will is inserted into the everlasting yes of the Son to the Father. This, notice the language here, this giving on the part of the Lord in the passivity of being crucified draws the passion of human existence into the action of love, and so it embraces all the dimensions of reality, body, soul, spirit, and logos. Just as the pain of the body is drawn into the pathos of the mind and becomes the yes of obedience, so time is drawn into what reaches beyond time. Notice that. This giving on the part of the Lord in the passivity of being crucified draws the passion. So he says the very the, the key to our Lord's sacrifice is not so much in the passivity of being crucified, but in the very act of love which comes to its culmination and pinnacle in that act. Okay, He takes the act which is done to him, his, the murder of him, an evil act. And he turns that very, the most evil act, into the greatest act of God's love. Okay? And in that, draws history into eternity. And that is where the liturgical action then draws its value. Because the historical, I should say, well, whatever, these are in a sense united, right? And now, when the liturgical looks back in some sense, or recalls the historical event of the Last Supper and the sacrifice of Christ, it not only touches the historical, but it touches the eternal. It touches the eternal offering of the Son to the Father, the love of the Trinity. Okay? And now man can be drawn up through Jesus Christ, or that is at least our goal, and that's actually our next point. I won't give it yet. That's our next point. Okay. Look on the next page. This is about, about two-thirds of the way down. It says, but there is yet another dimension. you see that? About two-thirds of the way down on the right hand, towards the right-hand side of the sentence. Are you on page 57? Page 57, I'm sorry. Page 57. About, about maybe 10 lines up, 12 lines up. <coughs> see that? But there's yet another sacrifice, Leah? Or another dimension? Sorry. But there's yet another dimension to be considered. This liturgy is, as we have seen, not about replacement, but about representation, vicarious sacrifice. Now we can see what this distinction means. The liturgy is not about the sacrificing of animals, of a something that is ultimately alien to me. This liturgy is founded on the passion endured by a man who with his eye reaches into the mystery of the living God himself by the man who is the son. So it can, so it can never be a mere actio liturgica. Its origin also bears within it its future in the sense that representation, vicarious sacrifice, takes up into itself those whom it represents. It is not external to them, but a shaping influence on them. Yeah, but we're going to skip down about maybe 10 lines. Although on the left-hand side, the liturgy does indeed. See that? Yes. The liturgy does indeed have a bearing on everyday life, on me and my personal existence. Its aim, as St. Paul says in the text already referred to, is that our bodies, that is, our bodily existence on earth, become a living sacrifice united to the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, so there you go. It's aim. It's our goal now. He's going to see that. We're going to come back to this page, but I want to go forward to page 59 real quick and come down into the second, or the first full paragraph about five lines down. The Lord has gone before us. Yeah? Okay. About five lines down in the first full paragraph. The Lord has gone before us. The Lord has gone before us. We'll go ahead. Yeah. He has already done what we have to do. He has opened a way that we ourselves could not have pioneered because our powers do not extend to building a bridge to God. He, he himself became that bridge. And now the challenge is to allow ourselves to be taken up into his being. Okay, so there you go. Again, on the last page he said it, it's aim or the aim. And now he says, now the challenge. 
Okay, now the goal. Once Christ has offered his sacrifice to the Father, now the goal, now, now the whole game is about this one thing. And what is it, Leah? Go ahead. And now the challenge. Is to allow ourselves to be taken up to into his being for mankind, to let ourselves be embraced by his open arms, which draw us to himself. He, the Holy One, hallows us with the holiness that none of us could give ourselves. We are incorporated into a great historical process by which the world moves towards fulfillment of God being all in all. Okay, so now the whole goal is incorporation, being brought into that once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's what the liturgy is all about for us, right? When I enter into the Mass, if I don't come to offer the sacrifice of love, if I don't come to be united with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The reason his sacrifice is said to be perfect is because he gives all of, him, of what he has received from the Father back to the Father for all eternity. And that's what I have to be inserted into, the mystery that I have to be inserted into. To stand before him with open hands as the Israelites did in Babylon. To say, I have received everything from you. And here you can see why he's insistent upon our gaze upon the Lord. That if we ever lose that, then liturgy is emptied of its value. That that is the only thing that will allow us to realize where we've come and where we're going. Okay? Um, go back for a second to page 58. <laughs> where we stopped, where he was quoting Romans chapter 12 there in the middle of the page. Okay, and the next sentence. He says, that is the only explanation of the urgency of the petitions for acceptance that characterize, characterize every Christian liturgy. A theology that is blind to the connections we have been considering can only regard this as a contradiction or lapse into pre-Christian ways. For, so it will be said, Christ's sacrifice was accepted long ago. Okay, and what, what error is he going to go after here? What, what do you think? So what we said that Christ's sacrifice was accepted long ago. In other words, Christians, you don't have to keep worrying about the sacrifice of Christ. It was accepted by the Father a long time ago. Yeah. The Protestant error. So he says, so what we said, Christ's sacrifice was accepted long ago. True. But in the form of representation, it has not come to an end. The semel, once for all, wants to be, attain its semper always. This sacrifice is, is only complete when the world has become the place of love, as St. Augustine saw in his city of God. Only then, as we said at the beginning, is worship perfected, and what happened on Golgotha completed. That is why, in the petitions for acceptance, we pray that, that representation become a reality and take hold of us. Okay? So yes, Christ's sacrifice was offered long ago, once for all. Right? That's true. But ultimately, it awaits our union with that sacrifice. Ultimately, if the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was the end of the story, then we're left with simply the reality that was in place in the Trinity from all eternity, and the incarnation is emptied of its value. And Jesus Christ incarnation is, is emptied of its value. Okay. That God became man so that man might become God, might be inserted into the love of God. Okay, that was the point. And now the game, now the challenge, now the aim is all about that incorporation. So that I can stand before the Father in the shoes of the Son with empty hands. But in some sense, in hands so full of the life of God Himself. And be entered into that eternal life which knows no end. <coughs> and thus, death will be escaped. There will be no death. So are we winning or losing? What's that? Are we winning or losing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you're doing, Mark. <laughs> no, it's the eternal philosophical question. Are we getting better or are we getting worse? Is the kingdom growing or, or I, is I, it, are we having moral growth or are we having moral yeah. decay over the... I think both. water. I think ultimately... Uh, we are getting better. We have to be getting better. Okay, it may be slower. The pace may be slower or quicker depending on the times of history. The challenge is definitely there right now. The challenge of being incorporated in Christ and living that life to its fullest. But um, but uh, it, 
it's def I hope is definitely growing. So if we did not, you know, like we would, we hear that his sacrifice was sufficient. And then it's, so why then do we have that live sacrifice every, every time mass is said? Right. If we didn't, if it was just historical, yeah. then we could not insert ourselves. Is that right? We couldn't yeah, be mean, that much of a part of it. Yeah, ultimately, yeah, ultimately, that, I think that is that is what's what the the, the issue is. Is that um, first of all, do the apostles have a better opportunity than us? Well, yeah, I mean, you can say, well, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. We're granted the very reality that they were granted. Right in the liturgy, and so the so liturgy does not simply become my attempt, my attempt to worship God. The mass is not about my attempt to worship God. It's about making present Christ's sacrifice to the Father, that once for all perfect offering, that now all of mankind is to be brought into union with. Okay, and um, and that's where that debate about oh, the Catholics didn't keep sacrificing Jesus over and over again. No, no. In a sense, the word has been sacrificed from all eternity, because from all eternity he's offered himself back to the Father. And in some sense, in that same terms, you could say the Father has been sacrificed from all eternity. In the sense, he's given his life to the Son in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah. I don't know um, if if you call this, but at one time. Uh, about 10 years ago, they were talking about how the sacrifice of the Mass is not really a representation. I mean, that was a, uh, at least where I'm from. Right, Louisiana. right. And um, I'm just kind of surprised he uses representation so often. Right, because he's he's dealing very much here with many modern errors in, in theology and in, liturgy, in liturgical theology where we're focusing more upon the meal, which is what, right? It's not representative sacrifice, it's a meal. And he's saying, look, he says, it must be a sacrifice first and foremost, a gift of self, in order for that gift of self to be received in the form of a meal. Right? So ultimately, the core and the heart is that gift of self to the Father. And only then does it become a place where I can, be, I can receive that gift. Right? So he goes after that issue here explicitly in the text, and, and, um, because he's dealing with all those modern, modern issues. And it's like page after page, just one after another, saying, look, don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. And he's, he's, he's saying, all of these errors have something true about them. Right? Yes, sacrifice of Christ is once for all. That is true. But, right? Yes, it's the sacrifice of the heart. But, don't forget about creation. Don't forget about the Don't forget about the incarnation. Right? And yes, the incarnation is important. The sacrifice upon the cross is important. But, it has no importance without that self-gift of the heart. So he's, he's taking all these, and that's a great theologian always does it. He can see his enemies, and he can say, look, I can see that you, your intention is good, and you're getting at something true, and yet you're missing something. And you don't, and, and, and never do theology where it's a theology of division and, and saying they're wrong, or in, in other words, that define yourself contrary, right? A good theologian always sees somebody and says, Okay, let me take what you're saying is true. Let me take what you're saying is true, and let me give you the, the fullness of that. Mm -hmm. Right? The fullness of that reality. So the historical reality is important to him, that, that it took place. The eternal is important. The creation is important. The heavens are important. All of these things brought together in one. Now, what's missing is not that he didn't do once for all and give everything of himself to us. It's us giving it back. It's as opposed to in the encyclical on hope. Right. The one thing that will never change is, is the free will, because if it wasn't free, you would be a slave. So you have to choose the good over the evil, and throughout life, and this will never end, it will be a constant controlling of why, or convincing of why you should choose the good. Mm -hmm. And so what I started doing during the, uh, this is my body, when the priest, in the, in the, in the voice of Christ says, this is my body, mm -hmm. I say to myself, back to God, this is my body, mm -hmm. which I am giving back to you. Exactly. Because yeah. it happens, it can happen at the same time, that beautifulness of 
Yeah, and inserting the earth. Yeah. And that's it. You have to stand to the mass with our hands, the soul, in a sense, our the hands of our soul, right? Extended out. And then the liturgy becomes for us what it's supposed to become. Okay? Then we join Christ upon the cross in his self-gift. Come what may, the crucifixion. Right? And then I become totally reliant upon the eternal life of God. And then that life is shared, and my own life becomes his life, right? My life becomes a life which is inserted into God himself, and now we'll live with him forever, okay? All right, page 16. Um, or no, no, page, page 59. Yeah, okay. Do you guys need to stand up and take a quick break? Because we have 20 minutes to go. You okay? Okay, well, there's stuff back there you can stand up. All right, page 15 at the very bottom is a little review. I'll read it fast. The last paragraph. When we look back on our reflections hitherto in this chapter, we see that, that we twice encountered the different contexts of the, a three-stage process. We saw that the liturgy is characterized by a tension between the historical Pascha of Jesus' Passover as the foundation of its reality. The foundation of the liturgy, its source and support, is the historical Pascha of Jesus, his cross and resurrection. This once-for-all event has become the ever-abiding form of the liturgy. In the first stage of the eternal... In the first stage, the eternal is embodied in what is once for all. The second stage is the entry of the eternal into our present moment in the liturgical action. And the third stage is the desire of the eternal to take hold of the worshiper's life and ultimately of all historical reality. The immediate event, the liturgy, makes sense and has a meaning for our lives only because it contains the other two dimensions, past, present, and future. I'm sorry, past, present, and future interpenetrate and touch upon eternity, right? Here's our interpenetration things, right? It's back and forth. Earlier, we became acquainted with the three stages of salvation history, which progresses the church fathers say from shadow to image to reality. We saw that in our own time, the time of the church, we were in the middle stage of the movement of history. The, cur the curtain of the temple has been torn. Heaven has been opened up in the union of the man, Jesus, and thus all human existence with the living God. But this new openness is only mediated by the signs of salvation. We need mediation. We need mediation. And yet we do not see the Lord as he is. Okay. Um, next page. About five sentences down. Christian liturgy is no longer. You see that? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Harry. Christian liturgy is no longer replacement worship, but the coming of the representative redeemer to us an entry into his representation that is an entry into reality itself. We do indeed participate in the heavenly liturgy, but this participation is mediated to us through earthly signs, which the Redeemer has shown to us as the place where his reality is to be found. But what is the, what is the most important key earthly sign? Was it before the kids? No. Where his reality is to be found. Yeah. How about his body? As he's walking upon the earth. Right? His, his own body is a sign. Right? Good. Yeah, so the, yes, the Eucharist, but I mean, even, you know, there and, and under, under the aspects of bread, right? But here is God in the aspects, if you will, of the flesh. Right? Okay, go ahead. In liturgical celebration, there is a kind of turning around of Exodus to Reditus, of departure to return, of God's descent to our ascent. The liturgy is the means by which earthly time is inserted into the time of Jesus Christ and into its present. It is the turning point in the process of redemption. The shepherd takes the lost sheep onto his shoulders and carries it home. Okay. That's beautiful, huh? mm -hmm. All right. Now, I really think that it's here that, the, that part one was supposed to end. Because it's, it's now that he really goes to the practical, okay, in the rest of the book. And he always comes back to these foundational issues. But once we've got this down, then, then we've got the rest of his book, okay? And one thing that's going to become essential now in his application of this is the importance, as I've said over and over again, looking towards God, of that hope, okay? Of the hope of the reality to come, that we're not satisfied with this, with this present reality and this present appearance. But we're always, as Christians, looking forward to the coming, the returning of the Son of God. Okay? When all things are made perfect. 
Okay, and that's really going to be his approach for the rest of the book. As he talks about the liturgy, whether it be music, sacred images, orientation, the altar, it's all about looking out towards the kingdom to come, and that kingdom to come being made present here in my life. And now I can touch upon them, and through touching upon them, I am drawn into them. And drawn into that hope. That, okay? So in the liturgy now, the, very, the hope, the thing we're looking towards, is we're given a taste of. Does that make sense? Okay? And that is why he will, over and over again, as you read through the rest of the which I hope you're going to do, he's going to always talk about gazing upon the Lord, turning toward the Lord. Okay? Um, if you notice the pictures of the altar at... Uh, the baseball stadium. In the middle of the baseball stadium, they put that altar set up right when he said mass. And on that altar, six big old candles and a big cross. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, that was never that was not taking place uh, what two months ago. And the the Pope finally replaced the master of ceremonies. Okay, his master of ceremonies. And the next day. The cross was replaced upon the altar in St. Peter's. A huge cross. Placed upon the altar, replaced upon the altar in St. Peter's. And now every single Mass, and you look, when they take a picture of the Pope saying Mass, whether he's facing the people or not, he will be looking upon the cross. He will be looking through the cross at him. Okay? And, and uh, in this next section of the book, and the rest of the, the thing, it's all about that. Gazing at the cross, looking toward the kingdom to come, and that kingdom being made present and under sacramental form here now. Okay, and then and now we're kind of in that in-between, reaching out on a journey, always in a liturgy, we're on the journey toward the kingdom to come. Okay? So in the sacred place of magnificent church building, he points out three things that are unique about the Christian building the church, okay? But he mentions one which we're going to focus on. Where the three are, he says, um, the, the orientation of prayer, which way we're facing. The second one is the presence of the altar of sacrifice, which has been, in a sense, restored now when Psalm 51 is realized in Christ. Those, he says, those bulls, the, the bulls to be sacrificed upon the altar is Jesus Christ himself. He is the true sacrifice that Israel was looking forward to when they were in Babylon. Okay, and in fact, that psalm is chanted, Chris, if you, if you pay attention to Father Joseph coming out swinging the censer, just before the Eucharistic part of the liturgy, during our during the Melkite liturgy, the priest comes out and incenses the faithful just before the Eucharistic liturgy, just as it's starting. Is it Psalm 15? We who mystically represent, right? We're singing, we who mystically represent the cherubim. Okay? And as we're singing this in preparation for the Eucharist, the priest is saying Psalm 50, and he concludes, then will sacrifice be offered upon your altar. And it is that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the altar is restored. And then he says, and something wholly unique in the Christian worship is brought in, something, in a sense, foreign in one way to the synagogue and foreign to the temple, and that is, um, and that is the place for the gospel book. Okay, that now the gospel has replaced the Torah because the Torah is made is brought into reality is interpreted in the gospel itself. Okay, but his first thing before the altar before the gospel, the first thing is orientation and prayer. Okay, if you look at page sixty-seven, whose phone is that? Leah. <laughs> It's at the very bottom of page 67. 67. 67. Is it importantly a joint answer? No. Christian faith produced, you see that? The very bottom, three lines up. Christian faith produced three innovations in the form of the synagogue, as we have just sketched it. These give Christian liturgy a new and proper profile. First of all, and I really think when he turns to first of all, no, reading his writings, his other writings, I think he means not only the first thing I want to mention to you, but the most important thing. Okay? First of all, the worship no longer looks toward Jerusalem. Remember, in the Old Testament, always people prayed toward Jerusalem. And when they were in exile, the writers, the prophets say, 
Or in fact, um, at the dead, Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, says, when your people have sinned and they have been exiled from you, he prophesies that it would take place. And they turn to this building, forgive them of their sins. So Israel always looked towards Jerusalem to pray. Okay, even today, if you see if you see a Jew praying, they will pray towards Jerusalem. Okay? Muslims will pray towards Mecca. They have an orientation in prayer because they are coming out of the Christian and Jewish traditions. And they said, well, look, we know you have to face something for prayer, right? And so they face their holy place. But Christians always face which way? Face east. The destroyed temple is no longer regarded as the place of God's earthly presence. The temple built of stone has ceased to express the hope of Christians carrying. It's curtain. Is torn forever. Christians look toward the east. The rising sun. This is not a case of Christians worshiping the sun, but of the cosmos speaking of Christ. The song of the sun in Psalm 19 is interpreted as a song about Christ when it says, The sun comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. This psalm proceeds directly from applauding creation to praising the law. Christians interpret it in terms of Christ, who is the living word, the eternal logos, the, and thus the true light of history, who came forth in Bethlehem from the bridal chamber of the Virgin Mother, and now pours out his light on all the world. The East supersedes the Jerusalem temple as a symbol. Christ, represented by the sun, is the place of the Shekinah, the true throne of the living God. In the Incarnation, human nature truly becomes the throne and seat of God, who was thus forever bound to the earth and accessible to our prayers. In the early church, prayer toward the East was regarded as an apostolic tradition. We cannot date exactly when this turn to the East, the diverting of the gaze from the temple, took place, but it is certain that it goes back to the earliest times and was always regarded as an essential characteristic of Christian liturgy, and indeed of private prayer. Okay, so look, notice the language he uses. We cannot date the exact turn, uh, exactly when this turn of the east took place, the diverting of the gaze from the temple. Notice that word gaze he's using. Remember, we, he had talked earlier, he quoted St. Irenaeus about those who gaze upon the Lord. Right? Our life is all about our gaze upon the Lord. He says, there where your gaze is, where your love will, that is where your love will be found. Okay? So we always must gaze upon the Lord. And for early Christians, he says, apostolic tradition. It's a theological term that, that, that when something is from apostolic origin, apostolic tradition, it is something that cannot just be replaced. Okay? It is, in a sense, given to us by Christ himself. Okay? And in fact, it is, because... The orientation towards Jerusalem is in the scriptures, okay? And now Christ says that he himself is the true temple, the true Jerusalem, okay? And therefore, we always orient ourselves toward Christ, okay? And notice he says that it was an essential characteristic of Christian liturgy and indeed of private prayer. I mean, even in private prayer, early Christians always faced the rising sun, okay? Because it speaks of that hope, of the light which is going to pour into our lives. We always look toward the resurrection, accomplished in our lives, lives and adopting something, yet there's something still to be obtained. Okay? Um, and uh, he mentions the other two new aspects of liturgy, but notice in um, chapter 3, page 74, notice what he goes to then. The altar and direction of liturgical prayer. Okay, so he goes and he's going to repeat himself in more detail. So he sees this, I think, as an absolute essential point that has to be restored. In reading his writings, I would say for him, when a priest stands at the altar, that he face Christ is of, is of more importance than whether it is the Novus Ordo Mass or the Trinitarian Mass or the Melchite Liturgy. His orient, bodily orientation is extremely important, okay? Um, because it speaks of this whole aspect of this journey, of this looking towards, hope, of, towards Christ, of our hope. And when that is lost, then liturgy is turned in on itself, 
Okay, there is no hope left, and therefore we worship that which we have already obtained, that which is found in ourselves, and we begin to worship ourselves. So he sees this orientation towards Christ as absolutely fundamental and essential. In fact, he just celebrated Mass in the Sistine Chapel, uh, facing, facing the altars, leading the people okay, towards paradise to come. Um, and what's that? With his okay, I'm so glad you said that, Chris. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use you. He says, with his back towards them. Okay. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, because he mentions it, and he says, um, oh, I hope I can find the quote very nicely here. Seventy-seven says, toward the people. Yeah, um, but he talks about his back. He's, he uses that language. Anyways, um, anyways, look, has the priest ever celebrated his back, his, himself with his back towards the people, celebrated liturgy with his back towards the people? No, no more than you standing in your pew, celebrate the liturgy with your back toward the person next to you. You have your face towards Christ. And so the priest with his back toward the people, his face towards Christ, leads us, rather than being as, as the modern concept of this kind of uh, separation of the priest and the people, of this putting down of the people, of not worrying about them, it is absolutely the opposite. It is the priest with us on our journey, journey towards paradise to come. Okay? And the Pope sees that as absolutely essential. So let's look at a couple quotes in, in chapter 3, in page what? 75. Why does they ever start this church in the round then? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Somebody's facing... Somebody's facing the wrong way. Somebody's facing east. So, okay, page 75. Look at two lines down. It says, despite all the variations in practice that have taken place as far as saying, it says, look, it says, don't worry about it. all the changes and changing the liturgy, all the various practices that you can find from place to place. One thing that remained clear for the whole of Christendom, praying toward the East is a tradition that goes back to the beginning. Moreover, it is a fundamental expression of the Christian synthesis of cosmos and history. Okay? Uh, look at this. Of the history looking out towards the paradise to come. Okay? Of being rooted in the once-for-all events of salvation history while going out to meet the Lord who is to come again. Here both the fidelity to the gift already bestowed and the dynamism of going forward are given equal expression. How else has he said that in, the, in, the, in this book? Both the gift bestowed and the going forward. It's that exitus and reditus, right? This is both are expressed in this, in this position, okay? That we've received something which is not mine to hold on to, but which is mine to give now, okay? Um, and then he deals in the next paragraph. He says, but look, you can ask, what about the question? God is spirit and God is everywhere, Right? Right? Again, one of the modern eras, right? And saying, well, don't, don't worry about whether you're worshiping that church or which way the priest is facing. God's everywhere, so go lay out the field of daisies on Sunday instead of attending Mass. And he says, um, he says, uh, down about, it's about five, six lines into that next paragraph. Okay. He says, does that not mean that prayer is not tied to a particular place or direction? He says, of course God is everywhere. We know that. He says, now we can indeed pray everywhere, and God is accessible to us everywhere. This idea of universality of God is a consequence of Christian universality, of the Christians looking up to God above all gods. The God who embraces the cosmos is more intimate to us than we are to ourselves. But... Our knowledge of this universality is the fruit of revelation. God has shown himself to us. Only for this reason do we know him. Only for this reason can we confidently pray to him everywhere. And precisely for this reason is it appropriate now as in the past that we should express in Christian prayer our turning toward the God who has revealed himself to us. Just as God assumed a body and entered the time and space of this world, so it is appropriate to prayer, at least to communal liturgical prayer, that our speaking to God should be incarnational, that it should be Christological, turned through the incarnate word to the triune God. That phrase right there, that's, that's the heart, right? 
that is so beautifully said, turned through the incarnate word to the triune God, which is what you're saying, Mark, right? That at the Mass, I am turned through the sacrifice, right? I am transformed into Him and offered to the Father in love. And the Father then, then communion becomes what it should become. That mere gift of God. I don't go to Mass to receive Holy Communion. If I were to go to Mass to receive Holy Communion, then when I'm in a state where I cannot receive Holy Communion, I would never go to Mass. I go to Mass to be united as sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And only then, in a sheer free gift of Himself back to us, do I receive Holy Communion. Right? At which point, I turn around and give myself back to Him. It is that act of love, back and forth. The, the, the love of we go, reciprocity, is that the right word? I don't know, whatever. Anyways, the giving back and forth of the self. Okay? Okay, so he says, look, it's incarnational. Yes, you can lie in a field of daisies and worship God, fine. But you can only do so because God became man in history. And that has consequences. That has consequences to Jerusalem. It has consequences to the sun rising in the east. It has consequences to what I do in my life and how I treat others. It is incarnational. Incense matters. Stone matters. Wood matters. <coughs> bread now matters. Because bread is transformed into what it was made to be. God himself. Okay? Does that make sense? Am I getting too into this? <laughs> Okay. Um, look at um, look at uh, bottom page seventy nine. Got four minutes. Okay, we're, we're doing okay. Seventy nine. Oh, there's your there's your phrase, Chris, right there. Up to four lines. Celebrating toward the wall or turning your back on the people, and came to seem absurd and totally unacceptable. And this alone explains why the meal. Even our modern pictures became the normative idea of liturgical celebration for Christians. In reality, what happened was, are you with me? In reality, what happened was that an unprecedented clericalization came on the scene. Our older friends here will know exactly what we're talking about. Now the priest, the presider, as they now prefer to call him, becomes the real point of reference for the whole liturgy. Everything depends on him. We have, to, we have to see him, to respond to him, to be involved in what he is doing. His creativity sustains the whole thing. Not surprisingly, people try to reduce this newly created role to assigning all kinds of liturgical functions to different individuals and entrusting the creative planning of the liturgy to groups of people who would like to and are supposed to make their own contribution. Less and less is God in the picture. More and more important is what is done by the human beings who meet here and do not like to subject themselves to a predetermined pattern. The turning of the priest toward the people has turned the community into a self-enclosed circle. Wow. How's that for condemnation? That's <laughs> true. Okay, page 81. A little more than halfway down. On the other hand, a common turning to the East during the Eucharistic prayer remains essential. When he says essential, I think he means in a full philosophical sense of the word. Okay, it cannot be done away with. This is not a case of something accidental, but what is essential? Looking at the priest has no importance. What matters is looking together at the Lord. It is not now a question of dialogue, but a question of common worship, of setting off toward the one who is to come. Do you see how this isn't, isn't a debate about traditionalists and conservatives or traditionalists and liberals and about the new mass and the old mass? It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with, with the heart of what worship is all about. And if that is in place, he's confident that all the other issues are going to fall on the wayside, by the wayside. Right? Because it doesn't matter what approach you're taking. If your approach is a Christian approach, it must be faced towards God. It must be faced towards him. And, there, and he says towards the end of the book, he says, then what do we do? He's, oh, let's look at that, page eight, uh, sorry, page 84. I said, I meant towards the end of the chapter. the page. Yeah. <laughs> he gets kind of funny. He says, moving the altar across to the side to give an uninterrupted view of the priest is something I regard as one of the truly absurd phenomenons of recent decades. Is the cross, cross disrupted during mass? Is the priest more important than the Lord? 
This mistake should be corrected as soon as possible. It can be done without further rebuilding. The Lord is the point of reference. He is the rising sun of history. That is why there could be a cross of the passion, which represents the suffering Lord, who is for us, who for us let his sight be pierced, from which flowed blood and water, as well as a cross of triumph, which expresses the idea of the second coming and guides our eyes towards it. For it, for it is always the one Lord, Christ yesterday and forever. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, just put the altar back on the cross. Let's start there, right? Which is, yeah, right? which is what we've just done in the church, right? The same day that his new master ceremonies came out and pulled the altar and the cross back out of the, out of the closet and put it back on the altar at St. Peter's, I walked into the church and Father Matthew had done the same thing. Right, because it is absolutely essential, and ultimately, if possible, as he's going to say, he's going to say, "Look, we don't need to get out tractors again and bulldoze our churches that have been built the wrong way." Unfortunately, he says, "The most important thing is that we're facing Christ, and if it's facing the wrong way directionally, okay, you build in the future, you build the churches the right way. But fine, that's not the most important thing. The direction, Christ is our liturgical east. He is our rising sun." Whatever the case is, look towards him, right? And if possible, if possible, turn and face the same way together in the liturgy. And that's why, I'm serious, within a couple years, because right now we're still in this game time where there's some uncertainty and some uncomfortableness. So he said, at least put the altar back on the cross, the cross back on the altar, okay? But you watch. Slowly but surely, that's going to turn into what it really should be. And priests are going to, again, start facing with us towards God. And in fact, over at St. Andrews, they started doing that. One day, you know Father Fasano when he was there, some masses were celebrated towards the east, towards the tabernacle, okay? And one day, one of my friends serves there, and he says, they forgot to take it and turn it back around, so the priest came out for mass, and there it was, and then they just left it. And so I think now all the masses are celebrated facing the tabernacle, okay? They moved the tabernacle. In, uh, yes, which he deals with. A lot of churches have a way off of the oh, side. Okay. Right. I went to the church that's out in Herndon right. for my grandson's communion. Right. And I got there and I looked around and I looked and you know, all the old sitting up there all by itself, nothing around it. I said, come in. Where's the tabernacle? I said, I don't see it anywhere. She said, oh, it's over there. And it was like from here to over where the cars are parked away yeah. in the wall. Right, so right, right. it was just a door, nothing. I was yeah. very surprised. All right, let's, I know there's some questions here, but we're, we're literally out of time, and i got to do a couple things real quick, guys. So look at uh, page 117. It gets into questions of images, and there's just one phrase that I think will help us do, do images and a lot of other things in this book. In page 117, um, he says, uh, towards the top, they were by no means regarded as mere images of past events, as a kind of pictorial history lesson, but, a but as a narrative, which, while calling something to mind, makes it present. On liturgical feasts, and this is where he also deals with, with sacred time in another chapter, on liturgical feasts, the deeds of God in the past are made present. Everything that we do in the church that he's going to deal with in this book is a matter of making that hope we have present here, <coughs> reaching out and touching it for at least a moment. What we do in the liturgy is our entrance into that historical event, the Pascha of Christ, of him going from death to life, from earth to heaven. Okay? And we touch upon that and are drawn into it. And now we embody it. Okay? The liturgical cycle is all about that. This, the images in the church are all about that, making present that reality. Okay? The reality, the mystery of the baptism of Christ, which I enter into in my own baptism. The, the mystery of the, pa of the passion of Christ, which I enter into during Holy Week. The mystery of the resurrection, which I enter into at Easter. Okay? All about that realization of Christ in my life. And me being transformed into Him, who is the image and likeness of the Father. And now I am restored in the image and likeness of God. Let's look at one last thing. I promise you it's the last thing. Um, in, i got to find it here. Um, 
Better write a little form page. Uh, look to page one fifty nine, and um, and uh, but we're not going to deal with one fifty nine. We're out of time. Look towards the end there, page one sixty five. If you gotta go, go. If not, we're gonna read just about a total of one page here, and we'll conclude with this. Page one sixty five, about halfway down. The liturgy can be compared, therefore. You see that? 155 or 165. 165, I'm sorry, 165. The liturgy can be compared. Are you with me? Yeah. Therefore, not to a piece of technical equipment, something manufactured, but to a plant, something organic that grows and whose laws of growth determine the possibility of further development. In the West, there was, of course, another factor. With his Petrine authority, the Pope more and more clearly took over responsibility for liturgical legislation, thus providing a juridical authority for the continuing formation of the liturgy. Now notice he's writing this, he's not Pope when he's writing this, okay? The more vigorously the primacy was displayed, the more the question came up about the extent and limits of this authority, which of course, as such, had never been considered. After the Second Vatican Council, the impression arose that the Pope really could do anything in liturgical matters, especially if he were acting on the mandate of an ecumenical council. <laughs> Eventually, the idea of, give, of givenness of the liturgy, of the givenness of the liturgy. Now, what's he talking about there, the givenness of the liturgy? It gives to us what we don't. How is it a givenness? What's, who is it coming from? God. God. How is it coming from God? Through the Son. Remember, think about exitus and reditus. That in creation, God bestowed his love upon creation. And in the liturgy, that's what we're giving back. So if we're going to know how to relate to God, we need to look and see how he's related to us. Okay? So it's going to become essential in these next couple of sentences. He says, look, the liturgy is not about what I create. The liturgy is about what God has given. Okay? Eventually, the idea of givenness of the liturgy, the fact that one cannot do with it what one will, faded from the public consciousness of the West. In fact, the First Vatican Council had in no way defined the Pope as an absolute monarch. On the contrary, it presented him as the guarantor of obedience to the revealed word. The Pope's authority is bound to the tradition of faith, and that also applies to the liturgy. It is not manufactured by the authorities. Even the Pope can only be a humble servant of its lawful development and abiding integrity and identity. Skip down about six lines, seven lines to the center. The authority of the Pope is not unlimited. It is at the service of sacred tradition. Still less is any kind of general freedom of a manufacturer degenerating. Did I skip the line there? Still less is any kind of general freedom of manufacture degenerating into spontaneous, spontaneous improvisation compatible with the essence of faith and the liturgy. Page 167, three lines down. Because of the historical character of God's action, the divine liturgy, as they call it in the East, has been fashioned. Notice, the, the liturgy, the mass, is God's action. In a similar way, in a way similar to scripture, by human beings and their capacities. But go back to the top of that sentence again. Because of the historical character of God's actions, the divine liturgy has been fashioned in a similar way to scripture, by human beings and their capacities, but it contains an essential exposition of the biblical legacy that goes beyond the limits of individual rights, and thus it shares in the authority of the church's faith in its, in its fundamental form. Okay, and he goes on to talk about Luther and his error regarding the liturgy. So look, he's saying that the liturgy, the mass, comes from God himself. And it is embodied in the expression of man in his return. That expression is divine in origin. And in a sense, you could say, man is inserted into it as Adam and Eve are inserted into the creative act, be fruitful and multiply. We are servants of that gift. We are not creators of that gift. We, we further it, yes, the liturgy, in a sense, can grow, but it can only grow in as much as I am reflecting upon God's gift of himself to me and us. And that reflection is tied to history. 
because I am not the only one who has experienced that gift. But there's a whole history of saints, a whole history of men, a whole history of the church which has gone before me and has reflected upon that. And now I receive that gift that has been offered to the Father through Jesus Christ, and I am united to it. And it grows in as much as I am now united to it. And it is perfected in as much as I am now united to it. Okay? Good stuff? Yeah. Is that helpful? You're doing good. Alright. Keep reading that. I encourage you guys because it's uh, now it just gets more and more practical, but he keeps going back to these fundamental issues. He talks about orientation and prayer when he talks about music, talks about images, he talks about standing and sitting. It's all based upon that. So Okay, and I hope this also give a, 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 um, a help as you're reading some of his other writings, like his encyclicals, uh, and the things he's going to be doing to understand, as he's accused of being this old traditionalist guy who's just going to turn everything to pre-Vatican II. He cared less about all those arguments. I wonder what Pope you know? John Paul thought when he was writing all this about John Paul. John Paul was there. We'll ask him that hopefully in the kingdom to come. <laughs> Alright. Let's conclude in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Benedict, pray for us. Amen.